Hello, treatment-free beekeepers. I've got another episode for you. This time is Mark DeKivitt. I've known him for a few years now. He's a uh, very intense beekeeper, very knowledgeable, very involved in his local beekeeping world. This is one of those episodes where we get deep in the weeds and there's lots of beekeeping information, lots of techniques, lots of theory, lots of philosophy. There's just a lot. There's a lot and it's a long episode, a little bit long, not that long, but it's a really good one. Stick around, you'll see. Here we go. This is Mark DeKivitt. Mark, thanks for joining me. Welcome. I'm pleased to be here. I've known you for a few years now. I think we originally met at uh, D. Lesby's conference down in Tucson. I think that would have been, what, 2016? Somewhere around there, yes. And I was, as I'm sure people are picking up on your accent by now, you're uh, not from here. <laughs> no, that's correct. Uh, I'm originally from South Africa. And I moved to the States in 1994, and I moved down to Texas in 2000. And I've been here just outside San Antonio ever since. So why don't you tell us how you got into beekeeping? An interesting story. I've always been interested in veterinary science and uh, went along to A&M to see whether I couldn't do a veterinary science course with them. And they suggested that I'd rather help with their ag life extension and we needed somebody to help teach veterinary science in the Guadeloupe County. And so a lot of the kids there were doing big, big animals, but there were a couple that were looking for something small like beekeeping. And so I started teaching beekeeping for them. And when you teach, of course, you've got to practice. And so I said, well, let's get back into beekeeping. I haven't done beekeeping in the U.S., although I've been exposed to it in South Africa. And so it was then that I started keeping bees, and it's just exploded since then. You talk a bit about... Um South African beekeeping and how when Varroa was introduced, uh, they made the decision overall just not to treat at all. That's correct. Can you kind of walk us through that story a little bit? Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, during one of the trips going back to South Africa after I started beekeeping, I was able to get a day with the state beekeeper and have a long discussion with him about the history of beekeeping in the country and the trends. I was used to beekeeping where you just kept bees. There was no such thing as putting chemicals and things like that into the hives. And when I came to the States, that's what everybody told me I had to do. This doesn't seem natural. So during the day discussion I had with him, we talked about uh, hive beetles and varroa mites and other bee diseases. And I said to him, well, yeah, what's going on with uh, varroa mites? And he said, well, when varroa mites started, uh, the decision they got together as a group, both beekeepers as well as farmers, and made a decision that probably the best way would be is to have bees that were immune to it. And the only way they're going to do that is let bees take care of it on their own. They also realized that the basic bee in southern, in southern Africa is small, but like the Asian bee, and they felt there was a good chance that it would get over it. So the state, the country as a whole, decided they were not going to treat. And that was the decision was handed down to all the beekeepers. And you see, for the first three years, they had huge losses. But he said after year three, the losses stopped and the bees started building themselves up. And today, they're back to full strength. Nobody is treating. Very exciting. Yeah, they were one of, uh, he said four countries, and I'm trying to remember what the other three countries, I'd have to look at my notes on it. But he said there were four countries that made the decision around about the same time, and none of them are, are treating today. 
What's the old saying, United States will make the right decision after it's exhausted all the other options? More than likely. He made us a comment that you know, we better get used to it here because that is the bee of the future. You can't keep keeping bees or, and treat them for any every disease that comes along. They have to learn to be able to cope with themselves. And I do remember that uh, the, at the Organic Beekeeping Conference, Dee Lusby said the same thing. She said, you know, the bees come and go, their genetics come and go. And that was iterated again at the Irish Honey Festival last year. There was a U.S. author that delivered a paper, and she talked about genetics, and she said exactly the same thing. Let the bees do it themselves. They will genetically alter when it is needed for that particular circumstance. That kind of runs parallel to something that I talk about quite a bit. I kind of don't have... People ask about breeds of bees all the time, and I really don't give much credence to the idea of breeds anymore. I think... Well, I mean, obviously... Um, the breeds of European honeybees that we have evolved during the last ice age when they were separated out into different zones um, during the last ice age and, and underwent a little bit of speciation. Um, but what we have here in the U.S. now is mostly just a bunch of bees. And because bees outbreed so quickly and readily... There, there is no, like, I, I just don't believe in such a thing as an Italian or Carniolan anymore. Everything is so mixed. And add to that the fact that bees are shipped around the country uh, in incredible volumes. Um, it just, to me, it just doesn't make sense that, you know, it's not like a, it's not like a dog. You can't tell a, a Cocker Spaniel bee from a, from a Labrador Retriever bee. They're all just the same bee with some slightly different color variations. I think you're absolutely correct on that. If you think about it, the life cycle of the bees are six weeks, five to six weeks, and when they get another generation coming on. And so there's constant renewal. And what's driving the renewal there is the microclimates that you find that these are bees in. And as you mentioned, during the ice age, the basic European bee was held up in, was it four or five different valleys, and they adapted to that. There's a great experiment done a couple of years ago in France where they took some bees from around Paris, which were used to a single nectar flow in spring, and they swapped them around with bees that came from the southwest of France, where they were used to a double nectar flow, once in spring and once in fall, and they monitored what was going on. And they found that the bees they had moved from the single nectar flow to the double nectar flow never capitalized on the second nectar flow. They weren't aware it was going to happen. And yet the bees they took from the double nectar flow capitalized on the first one, but then set their goals on the second one, which never happened, and so they all died. So that's an example that bees very quickly adapt to the microclimates, and that likewise is going to happen with the bees that we have here. So yes, the USB is changing to something that's specific to the different microclimates it finds itself in. Unfortunately, the migratory practices tends to mitigate a lot of the effects of optimization or Darwinian effect for that local microclimate. And not only do they adapt quickly, they are especially specialized to adapt quickly. They have a um, high rates of genetic recombination, um, epigenetics, all these things are sort of held in suspension in their genetic code um, so that when things change, they are very quick to adapt. Correct. Uh, there, was, there was a good talk about the, the role of the drone, and a lot of people say to you, we don't know what the drones do, but it is believed now that the role of the drone is to help with the filtering out of the recessive genes, genes that are not needed for that particular situation, which then begs us to believe, is the artificial insemination of bees a wise thing to do? 
it might keep the current genetics going, but those genetics are not changing without changing climates and environment. So those bees that are artificially disseminated are not going to adapt and hence have a propensity for high die-off. Yeah, and the reason why that works is because drones only have a single copy of their genetic code. They're they're haploid. They're That's not diploid right. like we like we are. And so there's no whenever there's something going on in their genetic code, there's no second copy to compensate. Every trait that exists in their genetic code is expressed. Yes, and I think that's the advantage that they have. You know, it explains why they've been around since the dinosaur days. They've been able to adapt as the climate has changed. So how is beekeeping in San Antonio these days? Well, tongue-in-cheek, I should say I wish it was as easy as it is up where you are. <laughs> uh, beekeeping in this area is, is difficult. It's difficult for a couple of reasons. One is we don't really have enough natural food for the bees in this area. And hence the hives, the largest hives, can't survive. The small feral hives do because they have the habit as when food runs out in one area, they just leave and go to another area. But when you're managing hives, and particularly hives, if we try and manage them into quite large ones, uh, food is a big issue. It's a really big issue. And moisture is another big issue we have here as well. Uh, we have high humidity uh, in spring when it rains, again later on during the year. And so the bees will battle to keep the humidity inside the hives down. And as soon as they don't, of course, then you get the high beetles and moths and things like that come into the hive. The bees here tend to be a little bit more uh, defensive, shall I say, and so uh, you find that they are um, a bit more difficult to manage if you're a new beekeeper, but also you have to change your approach to handling them. You can't handle these uh, feral bees the same way as you do the European honeybee. There's definitely a difference in the way you're handling them. And once you understand what their difference is, they become quite pleasant to manipulate. The other issue we have here is uh, because of the high um, feral content in our bees that picked up some of the traits uh, along the line. And one of the traits that picked up is absconding. They will abscond very quickly. If there's something wrong with the hive or getting a lack of food, they will abscond. So if you're a treatment-free beekeeper, this becomes something you really have to watch. You have to know the environment. You have to know nature. You have to know what plants are flowering. You can't just sit back and think, oh, well, nature will take care of itself because it will. The hive will disappear. Do you have any, I'm very much um, focused on teaching people that all beekeeping is local and that um, I would say certainly advice that you might hear from someone in Minnesota is not going to be all that applicable to San Antonio. Um, for, a, for a beekeeper who's awash in an internet full of random advice coming from every different direction, what would you say are some of the most important things to know about beekeeping in San Antonio? Everything you hear on the internet is just for information purposes. It's not necessarily something you're going to follow. Again, and even locally, the, the, the six apries I run, uh, their behaviors are different, and I treat them differently because of the local microclimates. The, the bees do like the heat, and so we tell everybody that your hives should be in the sun, at least for morning and noon sun, uh, but it, they have to have afternoon shade if you want them to start getting rid of the moisture inside that hive. If they don't have that cool side to be able to condense the moisture, then they're not going to last. And there was a very interesting book written by Ed Clark back in the 1900s uh, who talked about that, and he linked the fact that they can't uh, condense the moisture to absconding. He said if it gets too high, they just leave and find somewhere else to go. Uh, I think the, the problem we have here is there are a lot of organizations and uh, outlet stores now that stock bee equipment and bee kits and every promoting bees. And a couple of years ago, there was a, 
a fund set up for veterans when they left the military to set up beehives and have a little cottage industry at home. Well, you know, I don't know a single one of those veterans that started that and got all those bees that are still in the business because they just died. They disappeared or died. So beekeeping here is definitely local. You've got to get a local educator to tell you about what's going on and not just copy what you hear on videos or on the internet. Got to get an African to teach you about Africanized bees. Right. And you need to get your bees local and definitely you need to get your queens local. My feral queens here, they last five, six years. Um, the imported ones that dramatically come either from Louisiana or from Hawaii. Uh, they, those beekeepers talk about a year, six months to a year for those queens before they have to swap them out. Ouch. Are there any uh, commercial beekeepers in your area? Not not close by, but about 40 miles, 50 miles out there, two commercial beekeepers. Uh, one is a migratory beekeeper. And he does all the work out in the almond fields, and the other one doesn't migrate. He keeps his bees locally. Have you tried uh, polyhives in your area? Polystyrene hives, yes, very interesting. I have tried. I've actually got two of them up and running at the moment. Um, the characteristic I find with the polyhive versus the standard three-quarter inch wood Langstroth hive is that in the polyhives, the bees fill all 10 frames. Now, I run 10-frame hives. They fill all 10 frames, one side to the other, no gap. Whereas in the wooden hive, they usually leave the last two, the outside two frames empty and never fill them up before they go up. I find also that the polyhives seem to be a lot cleaner with a lot less burr comb inside. So what's driving the burr comb? I believe in this area, it's an attempt to control um, the flow of the air and the temperature and humidity in the hive. So the advantage we have with polyhives is they've got thicker walls, one and a half inch thick walls on them. And so the temperature inside is far more consistent. I also noticed that my polyhives seem to have a, a more calmer temperament than my wooden hives. So I like them a lot. Um, do they last in the weather we've got down here? Well, I think my polyhives now are probably running six years old in full sun. They're still fine as long as you paint them. Um, what I've done the last started last year is making wooden hives that are an inch and a half thick. And that was driven by two reasons. One is I want to emulate the thermal insulation. And also I can get thicker stud wood cheaper than I can buy the planks. So that was a driver for that. Uh, and they seem to be having the same uh, characteristic of all 10 frames being drawn and far less uh, burr comb. So the bees seem to like that. In the cutouts that I do, particularly those in the trees, you'll find that the wood around the, the cavity of the bees is probably two, two, two to three inches thick. So the bees prefer the thicker wall. Yeah, and it helps them. I mean, just keeping a consistent temperature is a major part of a bee's everyday life. It is. The other thing I've noticed with them as well is the bees move down in spring far earlier in my polyhives than they do in the wooden hives. And again, that's another example of consistent temperature. Yeah, I've pretty much everybody I talk to likes the polyhives, except for people who are, are very much anti, um, anti-styrofoam. I've had some pushback on that. So if you want to build a, a big thick hive, go right ahead. You don't need to necessarily do it out of out of styrofoam, but styrofoam can be convenient, and some people who are unable to build their own hives can definitely look into that. It seems to be a benefit not just for uh, cool climates, but also hot climates. Yes, and the other advantage is a styrofoam hive is a lot lighter. Um, a lot of the hives I've seen in the UK are all styrofoam built construction, 
But if you don't want this, the styrofoam, as I said, um, I use wood studs now, roof studs. They're made out of light wood. And the lighter the wood, the better the thermal insulation because the more air it's in it. It's also cheaper wood. It, is, it hasn't been treated, but it has been dried. So it doesn't warp like the planks do that you buy from the box stores. What dimension lumber is that? That's two, two by six planks. I buy two by six planks. That seems to be the cheapest one. And then I just um, join two of them together just with an ordinary straight butt joint. And they've been fine. They've been in the, so the first ones I made being last year. There's been no deterioration in them. So we added a whole lot more this year to it. Sam Comfort's Comfort Hives are made of two by sixes also. Oh, I didn't know that. But they're uh, they're like a, a one foot by one foot warre style. Mm-hmm. Now I've studied, I've kept to the ten frame Langstroth. I did initially try mediums and ten frames, and then when I wanted to do checkerboarding and other things, I was limited to the equipment I had. So I said, right, I need to go back and just standardize. So I standardized on that size, and that's what I do. You mentioned earlier um, retail bee stuff, and I've seen that around here as well. Occasionally, uh, like a country hardware store will have bee stuff, and it seems like over time, some of it gets sold, and and you see it sitting in people's backyards, generally empty, uh, and then eventually they will. You'll just see it ended up in the in the markdown shelf, and I th- my my point of view is that. A lot of that is based on the lack of good bee education that is around, and I think you've been doing some efforts in education. Yes, I just want to go back to that those kits that you can buy. One thing I tell everybody on the side is be very careful of who you buy your, your hardware from because not everybody's dimensions are the same. Yep, that's true. And I've had a couple of beekeepers that bought from two different suppliers and find they don't actually quite match, and you've got a problem. Costco had so. seven-frame boxes, weirdly. Wow. So the education is, I think, is really important. When I started here, I could not find any treatment-free beekeepers in this area. Everybody treated. In fact, I got kicked out of one of the local bee clubs because I refused to treat. And I sat back and thought about, well, I am not going to treat, but I need to survive in the environment. How am I going to survive? And it was very easy to understand that these old-timers that have been beekeeping for years are not going to change, so just ignore them. But who would change? Who would be have an open mind? And so I picked on the young beekeepers, both the under 20s and those that are over 20s. And then we have a quite a high retirement rate in one of the counties here of really well-educated people, and they were another target. And so I started teaching them both as a, as a beat club as well as some online courses. Uh, did a huge amount of presentations to anybody that would listen to me. And in every one of those presentations, I gave a list of pros and cons of treating versus non-treating and how it impacts the environment. And this is the important aspect. Bees are just one cog in the environment. And when you mess them around, you mess the environment around as well. And since we're becoming more and more conscious of what we're doing to the environment, this became something that I felt was an easy sell. And in the pollinator information data that I got from them last month, they, was, they said that um, this area has had a huge drop in, treat, in treatment bees. Uh, more and more people are doing treatment-free. In fact, now we've got four counties around us whose bee clubs are treatment-free bee clubs. So we've made the impact. We're making a difference. And I think we've targeted the right audience for making the difference. I think of that last conference we both spoke at last week. Um, I mentioned that I got kind of kicked off of my local bee club Facebook page because I posted a video of you giving that exact talk, The I think when you call earning the right. Yeah. And that sort of led me to, to be almost 
a little bit sort of isolationists, you know, and, and I don't, and I'm not, I'm not going to argue with that, that your approach is the wrong way. I think you have a very good, well thought through approach. Um, but my approach has just been, I'm just going to do what I do and wait for people to come to me. And I think that's definitely, I don't want to say it's the easy way out. It's the lonely way out. Definitely. That's true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I keep on saying to people, just think about it logically. Does this make sense of what we're doing? You know, all the treatments that people have had over the last 10 years, they still use them? No. Why? It's because they've become immune to them. They're no longer effective. And in the talk that I heard this morning from the pollinator information group, they were saying they're now doubling up on the, on the, some of the, some of the medications that they're giving the bees and they're now combining them because they're not getting the impacts that they originally had. Well, you know, look, I say to people, well, you can do that, particularly new beekeepers. Well, how much time is it going to involve? I said, well, if you're treating free, it's going to always be this amount of time. However, if you want to treat, you're going to double that or triple that amount of time you're going to spend in there. Do you want to spend all that money on that stuff? And then, by the way, you eating that honey that has all these chemicals in it? Does that make sense? Uh, people start thinking about it. I think if you're able to give them the logic behind why you've gone down this line and what are the impacts, because in the treatment field, people are not going to tell you the impacts. And you know, I think you, know, you and I have got a friend, Joe Bassetti. One of the things he said to me was, a lot of these things are treated as single variable treatments for the specific thing. So when I was doing some research for a presentation to the Ag Life group here on insecticides, uh, fungicides, I found out that the, in the treatment, in the testing protocol, they only looked at uh, forager bees and nobody else. Well, what about all the young? What about the other bees? How is that impacting them? No, they didn't know because they didn't test it. So they only tested a very small portion of the hive. Uh, and so, are those results valid? I think the, these are the questions you used to get people to start thinking for themselves, not just accepting data on the internet or wherever they happen to read it or from whoever they see it. But if they have to actually sit down and think, does this really make sense? Uh, you're going to get a lot more people starting to think that maybe we should be looking at the treatment-free. The other thing also to point out to them is how many thousands of treatment-free beekeepers there are now in the U.S. And you know, I don't know how big the number is globally, but it's huge. Uh, if they're successful and they're not treating and they're not losing bees like everybody else is, uh, surely that is the right way to go. Uh, people say to me, you know, we don't have, there's no papers here in the US, academic papers that talk about treatment free being successful. And I said to me, well, maybe not because who funds the academic research? What you need to do is go and look overseas, go and do searches in overseas databases. You will see there are hundreds of papers that talk about the impact of treatment free and how successful it is. You know, one of the parting shots, I said, if only we spent as much money on trying to disprove treatment-free as to finding out why it does work, then things would be very different in this country. That's exact. That's an excellent point. Um, I think I just had a thought as you were speaking. You know, beekeepers are quick to point out that a hive is a superorganism, and yet when when science is done on bees, it's treated. It would be like if you if you gave a person a medication and only checked on what it does to your liver, or yeah. um, and you do it on an adult, only on a male or a female. They don't do it over the full life cycle of a human or all the members of the human race. Right, and there are these emergent properties in in colonies in bee colonies that I don't even know how to explain it. The, these things come out as a result of the entire superorganism 
working as one to accomplish a certain goal or, or just to keep living and, and breeding and doing all the things that, that animals do in nature. But much of the science, uh, and this, this goes for, for nearly everything that I've seen, it's, they'll just do one thing if a treatment does one thing or, or they'll test, um, mite, mite numbers. I, I just find it totally irrelevant. Mite tests. What did they tell you? Uh, I'll come back onto the mites of this thing you often talk about. But in science, or particularly in, in the medical side of science, the cost of doing the investigation is high. And so they try and make it easier. You, as soon as you're dealing with uh, chemical environments or psychology environments, it's never a single factor that influences. The most important lot is a combination of factors, that inter interaction between different factors. But that means you've got to have a, a larger and larger test base to do it and a larger lot of data to start analyzing it, and which makes it really expensive and time-consuming. And a lot of the tests are done by postgraduates who have got a year, two years, maybe three years before they graduate, and they have to have finished in that time period. They don't have the money or time to do really effective testing. So they make it simple. They say, well, let's exclude the following, or we're going to try and keep the following variables constant in this environment. And, and you know, it's really difficult to keep any variables constant in nature. And so they simplify it down to looking at an impact of one or two variables and not everything else, which really doesn't, it gives you an indication, but it doesn't tell you what's really happening. And they always start from the same place. They always start with package bees. What a horrible way to start beekeeping in any context. Package bees, and they then get a, a treatment or large cell beekeeper to try and manage it. They don't understand there's a difference in the style that the way you've got to manage them. So, so you don't really, you're not really comparing uh, smaller bees or feral bees with the European honeybee. You've got too many variables in there that you're not controlling. I think that's an excellent point you make. Um, and that's one of the things that I've tried to focus on with the Treatment Free Beekeeping Facebook group is that unless you have experience keeping bees treatment free, then your experience really doesn't count in the same way that someone that has the direct experience does. I think you're right. Absolutely right. The first two years I battled with treatment free. And then I had the opportunity of spending that whole week with uh, Dee Lusby. And it was, you know, I hope I was just a sponge soaking up her years of knowledge. And I came back and I still battled the next year. It was only in my end of my third year that things started working out correctly. And I'm still adding to that knowledge. So it is very different, um, the way you, you treat them, the way you analyze them, the way you react to what's going on. You talked about mites and mite counts. And in the initial couple of years, I kept mite counts. Then I stopped doing it. And people criticized me often. Well, you know, why do you keep your mites? You don't know what they are. So you know what we should be doing. I said, well, I'm not going to do anything anyway. And then you you pull out, you put a, a sticky bottom board in, and you pull it out, and there's some mites on it. So what are you going to do? There's always going to be mites. We know that. At the pro and then what they also do is they say, well, if we treat, what happens? Do we get a lot of mites falling out or don't falling out? If I put it under small cell, do we get a lot of mites falling out or don't falling out? Well, you've got to think about what's going on in that hive. Bees are going to pull mites out, which means they're going to fall to the bottom. So, yes, you expect to find mites on the bottom board, and you expect to find more mites on the bottom board the more they pull them out. So does that necessarily give you an indication of how many mites there are in the hive? No. You've got to go and look at other factors like your sugar rolls or other things that you've got to do. But people won't talk about that. They, they are so black and white and so geared to follow a, a somebody's written procedure, whether it's right or whether it's wrong. They don't think about it. And I think that's the only way we're going to change minds is get people to start challenging what's given to them. Don't become followers and yes people. Start thinking for yourself. Does this really make sense? 
what is the method that's happening or what's the process that's happening here? And does the test indicate what's going on in that process? And when I started doing that, I said, it doesn't matter how many mites I've got. They'll be surviving. They know how to deal with them. Don't do it anymore. I've boiled it down to two things, gentle and gentleness and productivity. So if I have a hive that is gentle and fun to work and is productive, then that's all that I care about. Everything else will be handled by natural selection. They'll either survive or they won't on their own, their own problem, not my problem. And any other characteristic of, uh, you know, propolis production or comb production or whatever, that will all, in my view, work itself out and I will have the bees that I want to play with. There's a, there's a limit to what we can influence and we can do. I think we need to accept that we have limitations and let the bees do the majority work. That's what you know, people say to me, oh, our bees have been domesticated. And I challenge that every time. Oh, we keep bees, yes, but I'm not, to me they're not domesticated because there's so many things that they control which we don't. I always make fun of the liquid nitrogen test to test for, um, what is the word? Hygienic? hygienic yeah, yeah, hygienic behavior. It's like... My bees don't come across a lot of liquid nitrogen out in nature, so I don't know that that necessarily tests for something I really want to know about. I think that they're testing for it. The, the brood is dead. Do they pull them out and clean up the area rather than let it go and rot? Um, there are times when I'll see a lot of pupa pulled out, and other times I don't see any. So what's driving it? It's, there's something happened at that particular time. The bees took care of it, and they move on. But then you got to ask the question... What does the what does the liquid nitrogen do? Are they sensing what are they what method what mechanism are they using to sense? And by using a certain test, am I um, weighting the scale toward a trait that is not actually beneficial in nature and breeding toward something that's not actually going to help me in in the real world? I believe that the liquid nitrogen test is just to kill the brood and then see whether the bees pull them out or not. Rather than let them rot in there, that's, that's what I believe it is all about. I yeah, it's it's what it's supposed to be about, but I doubt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a yes man. You can ask anybody. <laughs> so you have any? Do you have any other tips and tricks you think uh, would be beneficial for someone living in the the what is your your area? Is is that considered the desert southwest, or is that just south? It's 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 classed as southwest, but it's not desert. Um, we do get a significant amount of rainfall, although it's all rocky, so it just flows off, so it's not that impactful. And then we have very hot summers, so everything shuts down during the summers. Um, the, the two big things that I've learned over time for beekeeping in this area, first of all, is you need to be a calm person. And so... My kids, when I take the kids into the apries and teach them beekeeping, I actually teach them, teach them to meditate. And I make them spend two minutes before they go just doing nothing, just watching the hive and doing absolutely nothing. And during those two minutes, I then ask them, what did you hear? What do you observe? I'm trying to get them to slow down. Uh, these bees that we got here uh, get riled up quite quickly. And if you're really rough and move a lot and fast, they will react. The other thing I've noticed down here is uh, similar to what it is in South Africa is that uh, if you work on the bees in the morning, they are constantly agitated the rest of the day. It takes them, it takes them a night to slow, to calm down and get back to normal. Uh, so what I've done is I've moved all my beekeeping efforts now to late afternoon, early evening. 
And yes, most of the bees have come home. So you do have more bees in the hive, but they are a lot more calm. They're a lot more settled and relaxed down and they don't give you nearly as many problems as they would during the day. So those are the two key learnings that I've learned to now practice and teach in this area. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, you often see new beekeepers will set up a lawn chair or something and sit and watch their hive. And I think that's an, an excellent idea because I think it it begins to reprogram your brain to understand what the bees are doing. And when you look in that hive maybe later on, you may not think about it consciously, but your brain's making a connection about what I saw earlier and this is what the con- what the conditions are inside. And so that develops an intuitive toolbox in your mind about knowing what's going on and how to deal with the bees. Yeah, you know, it teaches you to become more sensitive to what's happening in their hive and hence more gentle. So now I think you're right. It's I mean it's important that we should teach our new beekeepers. I've been thinking lately for for the last six or seven years or so, I've been moving around and have been unable to have my bees um, with me on on the property where I was living. And I'm realizing this this spring as I get back into uh, deeper into my beekeeping practice that as I'm just out there every day, being able to see each hive every day just from the outside, as I walk by, I sort of make a little subconscious mental note. Okay, this hive is not flying very much. This hive is bearding. That hive is um, fanning or whatever. And so when I actually go to work on those hives, I've already sort of developed a mental map of what needs to be done or what needs to be looked into rather than just going through the entire yard like a bear and tearing everything open and and looking inside. I think it's that's wise for a couple of reasons. You know, the, the bees build an atmosphere inside that hive, uh, which is vaporized propolis that control the temperature and the humidity in there. And every time you open that hive, it breaks that atmosphere. And it's, they tell me it takes over a week for the bees to rebuild it again. And so you do more damage, I think, doing tearing the hives apart on a regular basis than just letting them be. And some of the hives just manage themselves beautifully. So if you have if you do observe, and I think that you're absolutely correct, you need to observe the hives on a regular basis. And if you have the luxury of having the hives close by that you can do that, then it tells you which hives you need to go into and which you don't. And you know, I think I only do full hive inspections probably twice a year, once in sp- before spring and once in autumn, just before winter. The rest of the time, I'm observing what's happening at the entrance, and I just take the lid off and observe what's going on in the top box. And that tells me more than enough that I need to know of how healthy is that hive and what state are they are in. So it's not necessary to break the whole hive down. Absolutely. I think I think new beekeepers in combination with with the uh the pitfalls that we've already discussed with um with package bees, I think a lot of times new beekeepers will or in in older beekeepers even also will over inspect and will inspect their hives to death sometimes. Correct. And particularly if you've got new beekeepers that are not so gentle and still haven't really comprehended the effect of rolling bees, every time you open that hive and lift a frame, you have a chance of damaging lots of bees, which could be the queen. And so I think that the least amount of inspection is better. It's it's safer for the hive. And often is the queen. I mean, how often do you hear uh, a freshman beekeeper talk about their hive going queenless? It's 
It's constant. Yep. So that, that makes me think of another th- interesting but a question I get asked here every single year is that, um, oh, my hive's gone queenless. How do you know? Well, there's no brood. Well, what is the time of the year? Because the queens here have stopped laying around about July time period. There's not much being done between July and or, or July, August because this is too hot. Then they will start laying again for September, October, and then they go through another lull that later on that, that where they don't lay. And so, uh, you know, you'll suddenly get a frantic call from a new beekeeper saying, Queen's gone, there's no brood. Well, what time? Look at the year. So the, the thing that I also try and teach beekeepers is never look at one factor to make a decision on. Think that if that outcome happens, what are the other factors that would also indicate that same outcome? So the fact that there's no brood is not necessarily an indication there is no queen. You need to look at that plus the weather. And if you know what time of the year it is and you don't get brood, that could be acceptable or could not be acceptable. So again, I go back to something we talked earlier on about the insecticides and the testing was done. It is a, it's an environment that requires multiple variables because you've got to look at those interaction of variables. And uh, a lot of the old beekeepers here all talk about, oh, if this happens, that's what it is. And I said, yes, but here are some scenarios where that is not correct. And so standard beekeeping tra- or beekeeping education has to be done by somebody who has the knowledge of the environment, who looks at the environment as a holistic approach, not as a single entity approach. And I would even ask the question, why are you doing such a deep inspection in the middle of a dearth? Yep, because they were told to inspect. They weren't told why you inspect. You know, after that's that's a lesson I learned the hard way when I was in Arkansas, probably back in 20, 2009, 2010, that, that time when I started having, when I started having enough hives in, in one location where um, I could begin to tell that I was overpopulating the area. You know, when you've got enough colonies in an area, they'll they'll use up all the nectar in the area, but they don't necessarily need to rob each other because they're all getting satisfied. But if you got too many colonies in an area, you'll ha- the more colonies you'll have once the the nectar runs out of the flowers, you're going to have a lot of robbing issues. Yeah, and that is only super compounded by getting out there and opening hives in those times when there is no nectar. And we see too many pictures on the internet of apries where they've got 50, 100 boxes, hives out in a small area close to each other. Um, particularly in this area, you know, my apries, I think the biggest one I've got is, is eight hives in it because anything more than that, there's not enough food. Uh, we were talking, I think it was last week at the conference, of how many hives per acre is recommended. Oh, CD mentioned that. And he was talking about, was it one, uh, one hive for every two and a half acres, something along those lines. Um, and he lives up in an area where there's quite a bit of food compared to down here. So we've got to be far less than that. And yet I go out and I see this house has got a beehive, the house next door has got a beehive, the farmer over there has got half a dozen beehives. There's a farm that, uh, one of the research farms that I'm involved in that uh, do strawberries and blackberries and some citrus fruit. And the beekeeper that used to be on that, on that farm, uh, he had, I believe, 50 hives on that farm. And uh, the farmer was telling me he was out there regularly working the bees. Uh, and his comment was that I only go out there once every six weeks or so to go and look at the bees. And I've only got uh, 10 hives there. And I said, well, have you seen a drop-off in your pollination? He says, no, not at all. And I said, well, it's quite simply. Your farm can only support that number of bees. It can't support any more. And if you have more bees out, you've got to constantly feed them or constantly work with them to keep them surviving. Whereas, you know, I'm only here every six weeks. That's more than ample because I've got that balance between the environment and the needs of the bees. 
That's a good point. If you go back and uh, read my blog that I used to keep up pretty well back then, you'll see at one point I I kept my yard in just kind of a grid so that I could mow between it, between the hives easily. And you saw me get up to 16 colonies and then you see it, I tapered it back off because I discovered that 16 was way too many, whereas nine was just right. And so instead of bumping bumping that up to 16 at my home apiary, I ended up starting two more yards that had eight each at, at some distance from, from my home. And so I went from having robbing problems pretty significantly and, and losing hives to robbing to basically not being an issue anymore. So you determined for your environment that was the best balance to have, and that's what each beekeeper has to do. Is your particular environment, the beekeeper's particular environment, is what is the best combination or ratio that you, so that you don't have to feed, that you don't have to treat? All beekeeping is local. It is, absolutely correct. And that, that includes timing. You know, if you do your, your splitting or whatever you do, queen rearing in the spring and you have your timing right, then feeding won't be necessary. In fact, my my queen castles that I talk about all the time, there isn't even a way that I can feed them that's not built into the equipment. That's that's as that then when when I hear beekeepers say that, then I then I start showing respect to them because then I know that they <laughs> understand what's going on. We we can easily manipulate things to be successful, but we can't manipulate things to be successful sustainably or over a long period of time. And so this is why understanding the capabilities of your environment and the food that's in the environment and what else is going on is so important. I think there's part of me that sees when I'm doing work that's not efficient or effective. And so, I mean, you could think of it as, as being lazy in a certain measure, but I think of it more as there's just a certain ingrained part of me that sees when things aren't efficient. And so re-engineers things or changes my changes my ways, changes my methods so that I'm not wasting that energy because, because, you know, I'm, I don't want to do pointless work. I, I don't think most people don't want to do pointless work, even if they're being paid for it. You, you make me smile. This, I, I remember Michael Bush saying the same thing. One of the factors I found that uh, motivate people to treat their hives and feed their hives is the fact that several of them don't want to do nothing. They want to help out. So you have this urgent natural human urge to help. Yes. And so they are constantly want to help their bees be better. They want to help the bees have an easier life. And uh, because they don't understand the environment, they actually do more damage than they do actually help. So I've had to talk to bee beekeepers here and saying, hang on, there's time when you should be doing nothing. That is okay. That is acceptable. That's a smart thing to do. And so, you know, when I talked about earning the right, you've got to look at what are the barriers that people have to overcome the traditional ways of tree, of uh, looking after bees and having a more natural way of looking bees. You have to address that urge that they have of wanting to be helpful or wanting to be involved. And you know, particularly new beekeepers that constantly want to see what's going on. Uh, and so, what I say to them is, like we talked about earlier on, we'll just sit and observe the hive. You see many pictures in old bee books of beekeepers just sitting on a stool, smoking a pipe, watching the bees. You know, the message they're getting there is very important to watch and learn from what the, how the bees behave. And then once a while, once a month or whatever it is, 
you go in and you confirm of what you're observing or deduced from the bee's behavior, then confirm through your observation inside the hive. And over a period of time, you become more confident in being able to interpret the message that the bees are giving you when they come and go from their hives. Yes. I'm, uh, I'm watching Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit with my kids right now. And I'm realizing that we have a culture. And a lot of times we don't realize the culture that we're in. We, we, can, we, can point out, we can point to other people's culture. We can look at other people's culture and call that a culture. But a lot of times we don't look at the culture that we are in. We don't look at the way that we do things. And that, in a lot of ways, our present... 2020 culture is um, what we've been grown into throughout our lives into consumerism, into what I call the the prime mindset, um, where we can buy our way out of our problems and where solutions are, you know, two day free shipping away. And we have to we have to wake up and pay attention to the water that we're swimming in. As you correct, it's too easy here to buy your way out of problems or pay somebody to make it go away. Uh, cultures overseas don't have that. They have to learn to live with what they've got and what they created. And so they're far more careful and more observant into how they treat the environment and how they behave. I just realized the point I was making with, with The Hobbit was that... Um, we should we should sit around and smoke more. Not, not I'm not I'm not promoting smoking, but something like smoking that people used to do. You know, there used to be actually quite a lot of of leisure time. You think about um, even the the serfs and and the way the the lordships and things were in medieval Europe. Those people didn't actually work a whole lot of the year. That you had your planting time and you had your harvest time. But there were major portions of the year where there just wasn't a whole lot of work to do. And, you know, that uh, a 40-hour work week, typical American, is 2,000 hours a year. And, you know, our ancestors a few hundred years ago in Europe were working 1,500, 1,200 hours a year. And so we don't have, I think we've, we've in, in, in certain ways, we've lost our ability to, or at least we've lost our cultural teaching to slow down and relax and um, and just watch sometimes. We are hell-bent on action. We've got to be seen to be busy. And it's not necessarily the right being busy. So you say you know, Americans spend 40 hours in the work week. That's what they officially report. Unofficially, they probably have worked 60 hours because yep. they can't leave before the boss and they can't do this because somebody else is this image. Whereas overseas, they might spend less hours working, but they accomplish the same amount because they're spending less time doing those sort of things. They're spending more time, as you correctly pointed out, thinking about how things went, analyzing how things went, replaying how things went. bit ironic for some bit of information on the side. You're talking to me as a South African. You talk about The Hobbit, which was also written by a South African. Yep. Who was I? Was it you? Or somebody was mentioning um, somewhere in Scandinavia, it's like... It's a competition to see who can work less because it shows that you're efficient. I wish we could get that culture here. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> work smarter, not harder. That's the phrase we use in industry. Busy work is always something that bothered me. Yeah, it's a waste. It's Total just a waste. Well, and the way with the way that we um, the way that we pay people to do things here is is generally for the most part hourly. 
And so you get paid for the hours that you're there, whether you're doing something useful or not. Um, and it, it just creates a bunch of different things that I don't think are helpful for our culture. No. And who knows, the, the situation we know we had probably will change the way we work quite significantly, and let's hope it's one of the things that change. Well, I think we're getting off the topic of beekeeping, but I do that <laughs> I do that a bit on the I do that a bit on the podcast. Last last episode I recorded, uh we, we end up talking about haikus. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I do like to get off topic because there for me, beekeeping is more than just keeping bees. It's it's a whole sort of cultural construct about the way that I do things in the world. You know, I, the way that I keep bees is largely the way that I do everything. You know, I don't, I don't spray my vegetables for pests either. I mean, it, it's not the same for, for my kids. I'm definitely going to take my kids to the doctor because, you know, I'm, I guess I'm, you could call me speciesist. I think humans are more important than other species, <laughs> but it's, it's the way that I do everything. So one of the talks, and I've got a series of talks that I deliver to different institutions and bodies that are interested. One of the talks is titled, um, A New Canary for the World, for Nature. And I talk about the bee, the honeybee we keep. How it provides us as a vehicle for us to understand what's going on in nature around us. You know, here in Texas, we have about 600 different bee species. Uh, and that number is growing as we do more and more research into the bees. What's happening to the rest of them? And we talk about the interaction between the bees and nature. And so I've now got a partnership going on with the Native Plant Society, and we do presentations to them on it. Um, I've now also got into the Master Gardener program, and I do lecturing for their Master Garden certification. Uh, and all that tell, is trying to tell people, you can't look at things individually. You've got to think about the long-term impact of not only what you're focusing on, but everything else around you. And so Beekeeping to me has become more and more important as an indicator of how healthy our environments are. And that then stems the thought, well, if, we, if you're going to promote us not to do spraying and monocultures and things of that nature, what are alternatives? Uh, you can't leave people to find, at least in this country, you can't leave people to find the alternative or a different way. You actually got to tell them what it is. As I think I said earlier on, they're very hemmed up in following directions and so you have to give them that direction and so i've been working with our local native plant society to come up with some instructions and things like that to help people understand if you don't spray or you don't use insecticides or fungicides whatever else is what are your alternatives the same with the master gardeners you know fertilizing is a short-term gain for long-term destruction there are other alternatives you can do look at the type of plants you plant together look how you do treat your soils and prepare your soils so another one of the farms I'm involved in, they're doing what they call natural farming, where they don't till and they don't dig up all the grass and they plant their, their crops in, in these fields that have still got grass growing in them. Um, and they are, they are showing some really good results. I don't know what the yields are yet, but we'll see as, as time goes progresses. But I think that's the other thing we need to do when we start educating people on treatment freeze. We have to tell them how to do it and uh, not just tell them that it's something they ought to be doing and give them some solutions. Yes. That's been my, um, the last couple of years I've sort of changed my tone on how I do, how I comport myself in, in public beekeeping. And my focus has changed from trying to convince people to be treatment-free beekeepers and rather instead just teach. It's like, hey, this is, this is what you do. This is how you do it. If you want to argue about whether or not you should do it my way, then 
I've got people who want to listen who are ready to be taught and um you can you can go find someone else. I'm not I'm not against, you know, arguing, but I'm just not that person and you can go find someone else to argue with and when you're convinced, then you can come back and I'll show you how to do it. I think that they need to they need to understand that I need to accept the fact that treatment free is an option and it does work and then they need to be taught how to think how to logically think about the impacts of what they do. And this ability to think is lacking. We are, I go back to the theme I said earlier on, we, we're too busy to follow things rather than think things through. And so I'm constantly trying to teach people to think about what's the impact, give them some clues of how things interact. And then just as you mentioned now, is you know people want to argue with me, that's fine, you know, I'm behind a good debate. But uh, when it's blindly arguing, then it's, no, it's a total waste. And for those who don't have the ability or the experience or background to think for alternatives, those are the ones you give them uh, lists of alternatives they can think about and say, to them, well, here's a list of alternatives you can think about. We use this one for this case, and this is the reason why. We use that for this case, we, that's the reason why. And we don't do this for the following reasons. Then they can sit back and think, yes, that does or does not make sense. I don't think people in general think a lot about about the superorganism, about the emergent properties of the system, people tend to think about how is this thing going to affect me rather than how is this thing going to affect all of us. Is how's, um, like you were talking about with, with fertilizer, short-term gain for long-term loss. Well, that's the whole factor. We're very short-term focused is a problem we have here. Uh, even in industry, we short-term focus. That is wrong. Beekeeping is a long-term strategy, not a short-term strategy. Yeah, and you being from having a business background or industry background that you do, um, you know, the, a lot of times that's all about short-term profits. And you see when that's taken to its logical conclusion, you see things like like Enron and um, uh, companies collapsing during economic downturns and... Not everybody does. It's not something that happens to everybody. There are companies that uh, shape themselves differently and do things differently so that they can weather downturns. And uh, they'll never get caught in, in major fraud and abuse scandals because it's just not part of part of the way they think. Yeah, so beekeepers need to understand that this is a long-term pro- program. It's not one or two years. And you know, people sometimes ask me, you know, what's your honey yields? And I say, well, first of all, I don't uh, keep bees purely for honey production. Honey production pays for the bees, sure. Uh, it's more the education, research, and finding ways to get around having to treat bees. But I say, say to them, you, know, you get a good honey production this year. What happens next year? Uh, does it go down? Does it go up? Does it stay the same? I said, that's more important. What are your consistent honey production year on year? Not just the average, because the average takes the extreme and the poor and binds them together. But what is your consistent honey production? That tells me how well you're managing the bees, how healthy your bees are. Uh, not just the bees, but the environment in which you've got the bees. And uh, I think that's important. It's like people say to me, well, how many hives have you got? And I say, well, I actually don't know. How many boxes? Is that, <laughs> yeah? Which one do you could? You know, is a single deep the same as a three or four deep hive? Um, people need to start thinking through about the metrics we use and what we judge as being successful and not successful. That's an excellent point. I um, I don't keep like I can tell you about how many hives I have, but I can't tell you exactly how many hives I have because to me it's I don't think in units of hives anymore. I think in in I think I try to think more on a species level understanding of honeybees rather than 
individual hives level. Because if I think on individual hives level, then I'm going to be tempted to try and keep them alive. You know, you hear questions all the time about, well, number one is how many hives you have. I think a more important question is how long have you been keeping bees? Uh, if you're looking for somebody who knows what they're talking about. And the other question is, what are your loss rates? And I just find that loss rates are just not relevant because, you know, zero is zero is impossible, first of all, at least for any period of time. It might be possible one year. Um, and not only is it impossible, it's not desirable because we're looking to work with natural selection and people forget that survival of the fittest means that those that aren't fitted, fittest, aren't fit, must die. Part of the way the system works is the unfit must die. And so I don't see loss rates as really relevant anymore, especially when you consider there are beekeepers in the world who don't keep bees over winter. So technically their loss rate is 100%, mm. and yet they still can do what they do. But when you talk about loss rates, particularly in this country, everybody automatically thinks that's death because of disease when it could be death because of lack of food or, or weather or lots of other factors that cause that. And this is why statistics and data is dangerous because it's so easily manipulated. Yes. That loss rate, you know, when people ask me what my loss rate is, a lot of times I'll just say 5 to 20% is normal. Because 5% is a, is a pretty good year, pretty successful year as far as, as, um, as making honey and making bees and whatnot. 20%, maybe that's a rough year. Maybe we had a pretty harsh winter and we lost that portion of bees that don't cluster as well. You know, that, that, that uh, family of genetics that doesn't work for that temperature. And the same thing can happen in the summertime. I think in Arkansas, I was probably losing more hives in the summertime than I was in the wintertime. Because in the summertime, something goes wrong. Um, you can be robbed out by all the other hives. In the wintertime, at least you won't get robbed out. You're kind of on your own. Very true. Um, again, you go back to your microclimates, what's impacting your microclimates and how many bees you're losing is accordingly. I think that's all something to think about. Um, uh, so, you know, the point we've mentioned a couple of times now is the metrics that you keep. Uh, they need to be relevant to what you're trying to find out and they need to be look, they need to look at things from a holistic perspective. Holistic perspective. That's a good way to put it. I was looking at some of the data that was reported today about um, hive results. Hive results in Texas survivability. They gave it annually as we had a 41.9% death rate, uh, but they broke it down to winter was 46.2% and summer was 20.5%. I thought it might've been the other way around. I tend to lose more hives in summer than I do during winter. Yeah. And that's probably because of food. And I think that tends to be fairly common throughout much of the sort of the Southern crescent of the United States where winter's not that harsh and where you have uh you can kind of think of honey flows as the further north you get the more honey flows are condensed into one main flow and the further south you get they can be sort of bimodal yeah and that dearth in the middle of the summer you know when you have your spring flows and your fall flows and you have a, a big dearth in the middle of the summer that can be much more stressful, much more harsh on colonies than just sitting in a sitting in a hive and hibernating over winter. And you, know, what I find here in this part of the world is the population, the honey-eating population, like the like light honeys. They don't like the dark honeys. 
And so if you want light honey off your hive, you have got, you've got to take it off at the end of spring. Because the longer you leave it on, the darker it becomes because now the bees are putting a lot of other things into that honey. And so if I, my fall honey is dark, it's almost like molasses, whereas the spring honey is light. And so we, quite often if you are into the honey game and you're selling the honey, you're trying to satisfy a market that wants light honey, in which case you take it off at the end of spring and then what's left for the middle of summer? Nothing. I think that's a big mistake that, yeah, that new beekeepers make as well. They take too much off in spring. We're thinking, oh, we've got the rest of the year to build up the reserves for winter. It doesn't happen. All beekeeping is local. Absolutely. Well, do you think there's any anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? I'm just going through my mind. We didn't talk a lot about small cell. I don't know whether you want to talk more about that. Um, we talked about polystyrene hives. So an interesting bit of experimentation I did last year, and which might be interesting, interesting to comment on. In the worry hive system, they always place the boxes at the bottom underneath the hive. And lift the whole stack up and put it underneath, and that's how the worry system seems to work. Mm-hmm. Well, last year I tried that with the Langstroths, which was an absolute pain because most of my Langstroths are three, four, or five deep. So having to lift that lot up was not easy. I had to break them down and put the new boxes underneath when they needed more space. And one or two of the hives... Um, particularly the hives that were too deep, one deep or two deep, did occupy the box at the bottom. But the hives with three deep or more didn't. And I left it on during winter to see what would happen, knowing that you know, the bees are going to move up anyway, so it wasn't a problem. Uh, and in summer, they still haven't gone down to the bottom box. So it's interesting to see that in the worry hive environment, supering means putting it at the bottom, but in the Langstroth environment, it means putting it up top. Hmm. And uh, so that was an experiment I took. I looked at it over 18 months because I wanted to see what the impact of the following year is. And the following year is the negative impact, so I won't be doing that again. Another thing I found was interesting is I've been doing some reading on from Russian beekeepers. Well, when I say Russian, I think anybody from Eastern Bloc onwards. <laughs> uh, some of their documentation have become available through um, on the internet and using Google Translate, which is painful, but uh, I was able to translate some of their books and they talked about insulation and what's important for the insulation. And they have a habit of insulating the roofs a lot. You know, they talk about two to three inches of insulation on the roof. They're still keeping one inch on the sides. And their belief is that it's far more important to insulate the roof where you get most of the heat loss than through the sides of the boxes. Uh, so what I did this past winter is, again, I used the um, two-inch stud wood uh, roof stud wood and built um, migratory lids for the hives. So instead of putting insulation like I normally do, I just put those on top to see the difference it made. And again, it's only run after one year, but we will see uh, over time, the end of this year again, the bees seem to be stronger going into spring than what they were previously when I had just the insulation on top. So that was an interesting little experiment. So what exactly did you do? You had insulation on top and then what did you do to the sides? Well, in the old days, the typical hive configuration, three quarter inch wood, sides and top, right. and normal. Um, and then I went through a stage where I put in the three quarter inch foam insulation on the roof, uh, one for thermal insulation during winter, but also to keep moisture out. And not, I'm still not convinced that was successful. But after reading this Russian book, um, I moved, instead of putting the three quarter inch wood on top, I went to the two-inch wood and I made my lids out of two inches. And um, I've only run it for one year. And the impact it had is that the, the colonies were far stronger in the beginning of spring than they were previously. 
what the Russians were saying is that, yes, you do lose heat at the side, but not nearly as much as you do through the roof. The heat is not radiant heat, it's convection heat that they lose. Right. And so they think it's far more important to have a good insulation on the roof than more important than on the sides. And that sort of tallies a bit of what we hear on, on the internet, where um, people have hives, keep hives in snowy areas. The advice there is don't brush the snow off the top of the hive. Leave it on because there's an insulator. Uh, yeah, that goes parallel with what I've been doing. I've been using two-inch foam board on the roof or for the for the lid or at least under I, what i do is i use a, a piece of feed bag as an inner cover just to keep the bees from chewing up the foam board and then i use two inch foam board and then over top of that i put a telescoping cover to protect the foam board from the sun and my my reasoning for doing that is because uh i believe the word is psychrometric it's <laughs> You familiar with that word? The the study. No, I'm of, not. It's the study of um of heat and phase change and things like that, refrigeration. And so what happens is you're going to have a point within the hive, uh, and walls on houses are designed this way. Also, you're going to have a point within the hive. So assuming the high the the cluster, the center of the cluster, is the warmest point. And just for purposes of modeling, that's where the heat kind of comes from, right? At a certain point between the outside and the center of the cluster, you're going to have the the plane or the line where condensation happens. And that's where the the temperature is right at the dew point, which is affected by humidity also. Mm -hmm. And so at a certain point within any hive, you're going to have condensation and if if using just using mine as an example the condensation will never happen on the lid on the underside of the lid because that dew point happens within the insulation and because the water can't get to there to condense then it'll never condense there where it will happen is somewhere on the side of the hive so any condensation that happens within the hive will happen on the side or probably probably on that rim around the edge of the top and then any condensation will drip down the side rather than drip onto the cluster as as it would if it came from the roof that ties exactly into the book that i read that by ed clark he talks about that the bees do only condense or just um, condense the moisture on a, on one of the sides and he said also if you look into the hive you'll find one of the walls is more varnished than the other. Really? Yes, that's the one that tend to pass the hot, moist air over so that it only needs a couple of degrees drop in temperature to cause it to start to um, condense out. Yeah, I think that just goes to how amazing bees are at heating and cooling. You know, they can, they can supply an entire hive with fresh air and exhaust air through a single, you know, one-inch hole. Well, that, that boils down another topic, you know, where people pump smoke into the hive, into the entrance of the hive before they go in. Uh, one of the papers I read, the guy had put in a plexiglass side on the hive and did that to see how much the smoke actually got into the hive. And he, fa he found that most of the smoke didn't go into the hive at all. Uh, and <laughs> again, in, the, in one of the Russian books, they were talking about the whole thing. In fact, the whole book was a really interesting book. It was difficult to read, particularly <laughs> the translation wasn't so good. But um, it was all about the thermodynamics inside the hive and also talked about the gas exchange and was saying that the, the, 
although there's a, a large gas exchange to get rid of all the CO2 in the hive, the amount of air that actually gets new air that gets brought into the hive is very low. It's a matter of single digit percentage, one or two percent. I think it's really, really low. And he said that's the only way the bees can keep that hive clean and keep the temperature the way it is. So earlier on in the early days of beekeeping, one of the instructions that was given to keep bees is we have to use screen bottom boards because that helps us both with mite and um, wax moth larva. They fall through. And so you've got to put that on. And then I was also told that when you're in hot environments like we are in Texas, it helps with keeping the hive cool. And so the first couple of years, I ran screen bottom boards, and it was difficult. And then I went along to Arizona and found that the hives there were in the desert were straight on the hot sand, solid boards. And this said, this told me that something wasn't, wasn't right. Uh, and I had a good evening discussion with uh, Joe Bassetti about that. Uh, he was, his belief was he doesn't believe the screen bottom boards are correct. And I left that for about a year. And then two years ago, I decided to test it. And so I ran hives side by side, one with screen bottom board, one without for over, a, again, an 18-month period. And the ones with solid bottom boards outperformed in every single variable that I looked at compared to one screen bottom boards. And it makes sense. The bees don't want that big space. They don't have it naturally in the cavities that they occupy. And so as a result of that, I've got a high, big pile of screen bottom boards that people can get from me if they want it because I'm no longer using them. <laughs> Oh yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I think I think the beekeeping world should reject screen bottom boards. I think I just don't think they're useful. They don't they don't do what they're originally meant to do because the reason why they were created was to drop so that mites would fall out of the bottom. And um, the Bee Informed National Partnership that data shows that screen bottom boards don't help. Um, they do provide way too much ventilation. You know, I tried them also in my early beekeeping. Um, I did, it wasn't all of the hives. I did a few hives. I just took some old bottom boards and cut holes in them and put screen on them. And I, th so I, I quit using them altogether around 2000 eight or nine or so because I discovered that even in in Arkansas where it's also very humid and you need the bees really want a huge amount of ventilation comparably um, having that giant hole in the bottom of the hive meant that they just wouldn't either they wouldn't use the bottom box or at least they wouldn't use the bottom half of the bottom box if you're using deeps and so what I ended up doing um, was I would have a normal three-quarter inch entrance at the bottom, a normal hive style entrance, and then another one at the very top. And generally the bees would eventually shift to using the top and just leave the bottom fairly open as sort of an intake. And then the top would be the exhaust. But still, you know, even though that's, it's much more insulation or much more ventilation than you would have with just a single entrance, um, it's still way less than there would be that uncontrolled ventilation with a screen bottom board. And for those of you who, who want to try a little experiment, um, next time you go out to use a smoker on your hive, which I, I keep a smoker lit in case I need it, but I almost rarely, rarely ever use it. Um, if you go look at the front of the hive and you can kind of discern where the air is flowing in and where the air is flowing out of whatever entrance configuration you have, Find out where the air is flowing in, give it a little puff, you'll see that smoke sucked in there, and then very quickly you'll see it blown right back out again. Yeah. 
I don't know if you've ever seen that, but I've seen it no, many I times. No, I haven't. I need to observe that. There's you know, the comment of, about smoking. People tend to oversmoke the bees, and I think about yes. their trachea holes and the tar that gets built up into that. And I wonder how good that is. You have an Amish beekeeper about an hour and a half from me, and you go to his farm, and he's got all these hives out in the farm, and uh, he has a smoker going in the middle of his apiary on the ground, just, just wafting away. And he goes to these different hives without the smoker. And he's, he's, he maintains that that's enough scent for the bees to realize something's happening and to be calm. And he very, very seldom will carry a smoker to the hive. Uh, and here, okay, during spring, I do have a smoker right next to me when I'm working the hives. But when I get around to midsummer and fall, I don't. The bees don't need it. You know, that's kind of similar to what I do. I go out there, I light the smoker, get it going, and I will set it, I'll usually set it on top of one of the tall hives that I'm not working on, and just, it'll just waft up into the air. And then, you know, only if I get a hive that's really telling me um, verbally through sound, you know, they're telling me that they're not happy, they start to start to be upset only then will i use the smoker because using a smoker it makes a lot of things more difficult if you're trying to find the queen and you use a smoker it's going to be way harder than if you if you open the hive and and um sort of intuitively pick where you think she'll be you've got a much better chance if you're not smoking Mm -hmm. agreed well do you want to talk about small cell yeah Talk about small cell. Uh, <laughs> I see another topic of interest, interest, and I don't know the answer to it. It's just observation. So up until last year, all, I don't know how many all is or what the percentage is, of the queens that I had seen, both my own queens as well as from um, queen-rearing farms, had a queen with a nice, long, elongated uh, abdomen that was virtually uniform in width, just tapered off at the end. Last year's End of last year, uh, last season, and this year's queens are different. Really? They have a very wide abdomen close to the thorax, but it's a lot shorter and it tapers off very quickly. And I don't know why. I would, I would love to know why it was causing that. We also noticed that the number of bees that are successfully coming back from mating is a fraction of what it was previously. That's interesting. One of the trends that I've been noticing this year is the number of swarms with multiple queens i had i had not often heard of them before but this year uh i I was actually out catching a swarm this morning and i'm pretty sure it was a multiple queen swarm the way that i the way that i tell is you hive the swarm and a good portion of the swarm will move right into the box and then another portion will just not move in They'll just yeah. kind of hang around and not do anything. And so the first time I discovered that was a few weeks ago when I had um, some of my uh, my nukes were the, the queens were emerging and, and set to be going out on their mating flights. And instead of doing mating flights, they went out and swarmed. So I had several queens out of this one queen castle go form the swarm. And so I found multiple queens in the swarm and it acted this way. And so now I'm seeing online uh bunches of people finding multiple queen swarms this year more than i've ever seen before that's changed behavior no idea what's driving that we know so little about these high these bees and yet we still claim we domesticated them (laughs) yeah (laughs) makes me laugh (laughs) i completely reject the idea that we've domesticated bees i think when bees get too domesticated they just die yep we do more damage than good 
I don't think it works. Bees are so not pets. So small cell. So I'm finding more and more academics now are talking about small cell as a solution on based on the impact it has on the length of the pupation rate. Really? And so the smaller the diameter of the bee, the faster it pupates, which means that the bees are coming out of their cells before the mites have had a chance to become sexually mature. Right. And as a result, you're not getting the big mite buildups, which is one of the big impacts. And the other aspect about the small cell bees, I think it's in Michael Bush's data, he talks about how many bees on a standard frame versus how many bees on a small cell. I think his numbers were somewhere around 4,000 standard and 7,000 small cell, which means that they are they have a, a higher number of bees to control the environment, the heat, the temperature, well, the temperature, the moisture, and do more frequent inspections. And I think the, the biggest thing I've noticed was this year I played around with queens. Uh, I took a whole lot of queens and I put them in the chicken incubator at different temperatures to see what the impact had on both the length it took the queen to hatch as well as the health of the queen. And I was able to to um, vary that time by four days just by changing the temperatures. Wow! So, so I think temperature is an issue, and the smaller the cell, the higher the temperature, the faster they're going to pupate. Um, I also told that the the biology of the aspect, the smaller the insect or the creature, the faster it's going to pupate. So. If that's the case, then that is probably one of the, the key drivers for small cell being successful. And if that is the case, then you've got, to, you've got to think about these tests that have been done about small cell not being successful. Are they taking that in consideration? And then when you see a whole lot of mites on the bottom board, is that because the bees are pulling them out of that cell and they haven't had a chance? I think one of the things we need to look at is what is the mite buildup? And you can't use mite fall as a, me a measure of mite buildup. So I've used small cell since the beginning. I started out with uh, D. Lesby as a model to follow. I guess it was D and Ed back then when Ed was still alive. Um, however, the past five or ten years or so, I've been much less, much less evangelical about it because I didn't know how to justify what I was doing. Because there have been those studies that claim to have disproved small cell and they basically do that by they take uh package bees large cell package bees and they put them on two groups one control group it's regular conventional size i don't even want to say regular or conventional i don't like those terms but they put them on large cell and then they somehow finagle it to put some bees on small cell now normally they bungle this up because they don't realize that you can't draw small cell the way the same way that you draw large cell large cell can be drawn in honey supers and bees will just draw it out and no problem you try to do that with small cell you will fail just about every time and then they count mites and generally the uh, small cell hives will show higher mite drops or higher mite counts however that's not really the test of whether or not something's working, the real test of whether or not something's working is how well the hive survives. Remember, it's that emergent property, not just those individual aspects that are taken out of the context of the superorganism. And so I found just one study that kept the bees for a significant period of time. And I forget exactly the numbers they used, but it was like, it was like four different groups, four different treatment groups, uh, treatment in the, uh, the scientific sense. 
and they kept the hives for, I think it was at least two years. And at the end of the two years, there were only two hives left and they were both small cell. So to me, that says more than any mite test. Yes, because I think the mite test has is, is gone about the wrong way. If I look at the cutouts that I do in this part of the world, 95 plus percent of them are all small cell. So, you know, that tells me, and they're surviving. So, you know, and if they were large cell and they survived, why would they regress down to small cell? So this year in the swarm traps that I put out, I put some frames that were uh, small cell foundation, uh, some frames that were large cell foundation because I ran out of small cell. I've got a whole stack of the art cells sitting on the side. And then some frames that just had uh, starter strips in the top and some frames with nothing in it. And so far, consistently in all the swarm swarm traps that I've now emptied and put into um, boxes, the bees drew out the small frame, the small cell uh, plastic foundation first. Didn't touch the large cell. And uh, those that had left in long enough, when they ran out of the small cell plastic foundation, started drawing comb on the empty frames. So I think that's an indication that bees naturally would rather go for a small cell than a large. Well, and that's the, the kind of the conclusion that I went to was the the line that I eventually went to was that the purpose of foundation is to keep comb straight in the frames. And if you're going to use foundation, you might as well use the most natural size available since bees do draw multiple sizes on pretty much every comb and the the normal size for bees before before foundation is introduced is in the the upper four millimeter range yeah well here we find it's about 4.5 to 4.7 seems to be the average size that i'm seeing in the feral colonies i guess i'm uh i'm going a lot more foundationless this year because where i had my um, where I had my comb stacked, which f I did well. It was stacked up and, and wax moths didn't get to it. But some some varmint animal, some rodent or something, got in there and like ate all the comb and just leave piles of, of, of chunks of comb left. And so I've got all these nice drawn combs of frame that are missing like huge pieces, huge portions are gone. And so I'm just, I'm working them into my hives now and the bees will fill in the details and everything will be fine. So I guess I'm going more foundationless in that sense this year. Well, something has eaten your mice or something like that. I don't know what else. Yeah, it, it doesn't look like mice and there's no mouse nest. There's you, mice will usually make nests if they do. I, I don't know if it's maybe something like a gopher or maybe a rat or something. I don't know. Some other creatures that are eating it, yeah. I hadn't seen any damage like that before. Hmm. Yeah, I like the plastic foundation for a couple of reasons. One is the moths can't do too much damage in it, neither can the hive beetles. And I don't lose the whole frame. Uh, it doesn't warp when it gets hot, and it doesn't warp when it goes into the extractor. So. Um, yeah, it's so good for extracting. You can spin the lights out of it, and it will never break. So it's, I'm sticking to it at the moment. I've tried both the, the fully drawn plastic foundation and then the ones that are just the normal plastic foundation. And the conclusion I drew out of playing around with that last year is it depends on when you put it in. If you put it in during a nectar flow and the bees are short of space, they will use it. 
and some of the hives I put them in, they did, they used it that same week I put it in. Um, some of them put um, honey in it and some of them put in brood into it. Um, but if you put it in outside that nectar flow period, they don't like it. They, well, they didn't take it. Maybe it'll change. Who knows? But they didn't take it. Yeah, my experience with it is it needs to be on a nectar flow and it needs to be all one box contiguous of new plastic frames because if you if you try to put like a plastic frame in between some other frames most of the time they will draw those other frames out deeper rather than than draw new comb on the plastic frame that's been my experience good what else can we talk about uh... well i've got my normal is a full hour so we're oh. well beyond that so okay so you've got enough for your hour yeah it's i've good. got enough Depends on how much editing you're going to have to do. <laughs> Not much. I usually just remove uh, mistakes and junk. I don't. I don't edit for content. So good. Well, it's been good talking to you. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, and talking to me here. It's been a very very dense informational conversation. So it's been really good. Well, let's hope all the audience that that listen to the podcast think the same way. Is there any way you would like people to contact you if they want to get a hold of you? Yeah, they can email me at African Queen Apri, all one word, African Queen Apri at att.net. And uh, just for fun, how do you spell your last name? D E space K I E W I E T. And it's pronounced? Dekivit. I was, I I was I misspelled it for so many years, so I always want to make sure to Lots get of that people right. Do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for for talking to me today. I uh, really appreciate having you on. Likewise, I've enjoyed it. Have a good week. Well, that was Mark DeKivitt. He's been a friend of mine for a few years now. He's a great guy, uh, very active in his local beekeeping organizations down there in San Antonio. Thank you for listening to this episode. We've come to the end now. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Had a lot of fun. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash TFB. Check out my YouTube page, Facebook page, forum at tfbforum.com. If you just Google treatment-free beekeeping, you will find us, I promise. And I will see you again next time. Have fun keeping bees, because if you're not having fun, you're already out in the sun, you might as well get a tan. <laughs>